for us, the 1% rule was just a disaster. We were never going to do that. And so we shoot for, I would say, on average, 1.2 to 1.5%, which doesn't sound like a lot more, but it's significant once you add in time, value of money. And I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest today is one part of a two-man partnership of family men who grew tired of working in corporate America and wanted something better. One day over lunch, they decided to do something about it. They purchased their first rental property in June of 2013 and have since built a portfolio of 52 rental properties that has made them financially independent in just six years. You can find detailed breakdowns of many of their deals at StealthyRich.com and at StealthyRich on Instagram. Chris, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Love your podcast. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to have you. So can you recall uh, an aha moment for you when it comes to real estate investing? Yes. Something interesting. At the beginning, I used to invest a lot in the stock market. I loved the stock market, the idea of making a return. And I quickly learned, though, that you didn't have, at least the at-home investors, you didn't have all the information. It seemed like all the action happened in the pre-market trading or the after-hours trading. And I did some options trading as well, which I found out to be really risky. And uh, I got into real estate with, uh, with a partner, and I quickly learned that you, know, you borrow money to then leverage your return. And that's normal in the real estate world. I would never borrow money to buy a stock. You know, I would never trade on margin. But to, tr- to buy real estate and to trade uh, or buy with, with leverage was normal. And it was, a, it was an aha moment to me saying, that's how I'm going to get ahead in life. That's how I'm going to build real wealth is by leveraging real estate to, uh, to make a return. And then in the, 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 the flip side to that or the, the icing on the cake is that, you know, then you get tenants to then pay your note each month uh, to, to, as it grows and appreciates. So that was my aha moment for me. And that's when I basically left uh, index investing except for my retirement accounts and put all my eggs into the real estate basket. Where did you sort of hear about real estate investing or did you read a book or were you listening to podcasts? Yeah, it was a good question. I, um, I, you know, I went to a lunch one day with, uh, with a group of friends. We were all, you know, working, had nine to five corporate jobs. And I think I said something like at the lunch, Hey, you know, it'd be great to get into real estate or start a side business or something because I, I couldn't see myself working at this job. You know, I think I was 30 at the time. I couldn't see myself working at the job for 30 more years. I mean, I liked my job, but it just seemed like a, you know, cubicle um, hell, right? Or, you know, <laughs> cubicle rock, right? And so I, I just, yeah. it, was, it was very, it just seemed so futile to me. And so my partner, or at the time, there was a friend who had just moved to Houston. He said, hey, man, I did some real estate when I was in college uh, back in, in, in West Texas. And, you know, we should start it again here in Houston. 
And I was like, well, that sounds interesting. Someone who knows something about this and has some, uh, some knowledge, I would love to piggyback that and use my, my knowledge and my abilities to help grow that. And so we had three other guys at that lunch who were also uh, successful businessmen. And so we started this partnership. And that's, that's kind of how it started. So you were really, you kind of learned through their expertise? Uh, yes. And so then once we did our first couple of deals, I definitely, then I, I dove all in on the, the, the original Bigger Pockets podcast. Right? Those first 50 mm-hmm. were just like liquid gold for me. And, you know, some of the stuff was not applicable, but much of it was. And I learned, you know, what to do or what to try. And then, of course, my own mistakes were made, and I learned from those as well. But those podcasts, and then, of course, the, the, the pivotal book that we all, many people say, right, was Rich Dad, Poor Dad for me. When I read that book, that was the moment when I realized that I needed to not work for someone else, but work for myself if I wanted to get ahead and, you know, quote, unquote, get out early. Uh, it just wouldn't happen. Even though I was making a very good salary, it just was not going to happen quickly in the, in the corporate world, working for yeah. somebody else. We need to do a, a like clip of like rich dad, poor dad, rich dad, rich dad poor dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I, there can't be very many of the podcasts that we've put out so far that don't mention it, at least in passing as like a recommended yeah. book or something that um, really sparked the interest in, in that. So it's kind of funny. Well, and the so, funny thing is it really doesn't, it doesn't have a whole lot of, it doesn't have any how-to. No, it was a mindset how- shift. It was a mindset shift. Yeah, absolutely. For me. So, you know, a lot of investors talk about the law of the first deal. Um, <laughs> and so many, so many real estate investors really struggle to get over that hump. Would you say having those partners sort of in your corner was what helped you kind of get beyond that fear of that first deal? I think so. Right. And I, I can explain my first deal to you. I actually had two first deals if you want to call them that. Right. So the, that, but yes, the first deal was so vanilla for us. You know, I look back now at that deal and, you know, I probably wouldn't buy that same deal today, of course, but back then, you know, it was 2013, we bought a house off the MLS, so off, you know, just retail, retail listing. We paid, I think, $91,000 for it as a four-bedroom, two-bath house. You know, it was okay price, but it wasn't a screaming deal. It was on the MLS. We had to pay, uh, you know, an agent on the other side to, you know, pay for that. You know, there was commission involved. And, we, you know, we did an inspection. We did a very normal transaction. And there was five of us. So we were all contributing. At this part, we had some very unique financing. We were using a Merrill Lynch product, which was interest only. But if it was, it was Fannie Mae underwritten. So it was still... You know, it felt like you were getting a colonoscopy with all the stuff they were asking for. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but the, the pro is that it was interest only. So the note on that first house was $92. And so that was very attractive to us and it was very risk adverse. So we knew this house rented for $1,225. We were only paying $92 a month for, uh, for the mortgage. Of course, there were taxes and insurance. But, you know, so there was a lot of room in there to mess up. Uh, but that loan required 30% down, which was a lot of cash. And so each, each of us had to contribute about $6,000 $6, to that deal. And, you know, splitting it five ways, there really wasn't that much, much to, to, to get back. But it, we had done the deal. And so that was the going through the motion and going through the process made me more comfortable for the next one. And so that one, 
you know, it was really vanilla, but, and having the risk split five ways also felt more comfortable, you know, if the whole thing went south, because I just had no idea what could go wrong at that point. So that was our first deal. Our second first deal, if you will, is when my, we broke off from those other guys and just me and my partner, Dave, we bought a house for $49,000. Now this house had significant foundation issues. In fact, the owner had got a bid for about 60 grand to fix the foundation. And when you walk through that house, you know, you could kind of feel like you're on a hill hill and, you know, the doors didn't shut right and there were cracks in the walls. And I was super nervous. I was like, I think, Dave, there's no way we could buy this house. And, you know, like, that's just so risky. And he, he, you know, assured me it's going to be okay. And sure enough, we found a guy who we still use today, seven years later, who fixed that foundation for $5,000 with a lifetime wow. warranty. Right. So that was, and it's just finding the right, the right people. And so, and the funny story on that one, he raised it. We had to end up raising it like eight or nine inches from the back. That's how much. There were three by three foot holes throughout that house that he cut. And there were piles of dirt like in the living room. Right. And I'm just like, what is, what is going on? Like, what? <laughs> and in the, in the process of raising that house, it raised it so much off the back where the, where the electric, the electric box was actually ripped the electric box off the, off the post and it caused a big spark. And, you know, like a company got mad at us and whatever, but so all that, in, you know, so that, those are the kind of stories we dealt with at first, but all in all, so we, we paid 5,000 to get the foundation fixed. Then of course we had to fix all the floors and then we painted the whole thing and changed some light fixtures. Whole thing cost us, I think 18 to $20,000 total. So now we're in this house, 49 plus 18,000, uh, which is, you know, r- roughly uh, 60 grand or 70 grand, excuse me, 70,000. And then we refinanced it for $95,000. And so we got all of our money back out right away. And then we had a, a, a house bringing in $1,250 a month. And when I saw that, when I had that moment, I realized this is repeatable and I need to do this 100 times. And that is exactly what started our tear on the next 50. So it was bringing in $1,250 a month net? No, sorry, sorry. That was sorry. That was the that was the um, the rent. Excuse me. Yeah, twelve hundred fifty dollars rent, and we had you know gotten a loan for you know eighty percent of ninety ninety five thousand dollars, which was gotcha. more than the money we had into it. So that's what that seventy something thousand dollars, and we only had about sixty nine into it, and so we basically got all of our money back out, and it cash flowed well. I mean, we were making probably two hundred fifty three hundred dollars a month. Uh, from cash flow. And that's not including the, the principal pay down that was going to each month. Right. So when yeah. I saw that, I, I, and I mean, there's so many things to talk about here and it's tax advantage. There's just so many, so many keys. But when I saw all that, I was like, I have to get as many of these as I can, because that is how we're going to exit the, the workforce quickly. Yeah. And how long did it take you to refinance that? How long was your cap? So we bought that one. I would say it took us about a month just because we were new and didn't know what we were doing to, uh, to get it all fixed up and, you know, fix the electrical box and find good painters. And, you know, you know, this is, it was like the very beginning of our journey. So we were asking around for, for contractors and, and uh, you know, and, and people that could help us with that. And so once we got it, once we got it uh, stabilized and rented, it probably took us another month. And, and just as a side note, that is the only property out of the 52 that we did a, uh, Fannie Mae loan on. So that was a 30 year note 
right? And so, and that was actually in my my personal name. And that one, you know, that was the very first one we did. Everyone after that, we've found easier and more or quicker ways to, to finance properties, which we can go into. So yeah, so all start to finish was about two months to get it stabilized. Okay, so stabilized, and then were you able to refi right out, right out of it, or did it take a season Correct. period? No, yeah. So that one, uh, so that I'll tell you the secret on that one. <laughs> so that one, my partner had bought the house to begin with, because we bought it with cash, right? And so, gotcha. I mean, we shared the cash, but it was in his, the note was in his name, not the note, the, the, the title was in his name. And we yep. asked our CPA, we said, what's the best way to do this? And he said, just sell it to your partner. And I was like, that sounds so shady. And he said, no, that's <laughs> totally fine. And so he sold it to me. And that's what he sold it to me for $95,000. Uh, we couldn't obviously repeat that many times, but that, that one time it worked. Um, and that's how we were able to get past any seasoning requirements. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Interesting. I, I understand now. Cause yeah. you know, I know you but, can do typically they'll, they'll require you to season it for six months to a year. You can do like delayed financing, right? Which we've talked with, uh, like Lee Huffman and Alex Felice. We've on previous episodes we've talked to them about that, but that's not what you were doing here. You were basically able to just bypass all of that and just he was just able to sell. You and you were able to go out and get a loan. And because we were in the same LLC and it was a fifty-fifty ownership in the LLC for tax purposes, it just showed as a refi. It didn't show as a as a, a transfer of ownership. So there were no, no taxes on that either, which is just crazy. But that's great. Yeah. But so what we've done now, just to fast forward, because it kind of, I think makes sense is that now what we do is we'll buy a house with cash or with short term money line, uh, line of credits that we have that, that are, you know, roughly 10, 10% APR. And we could borrow that money, buy a house, stabilize it, you know, put 10 to 15,000 into it, paint carpet, appliances, whatever, AC. And then we have local banks that will finance that property. It's not a refi, it's a finance because we never paid, we never had a note on to begin with. And they will do an appraisal and whatever it appraises that, they will give us 80% of that. And that is always more than what we paid for the property because of the way we find our deal. And so that's how we've been able to leverage and grow quickly without having to um, you know, worry about having money stuck in these houses. And those are what we do. With, and the key to that is finding a small regional bank. And my, and my, my advice is find banks with the fewest branches. <laughs> so for one branch, the, you know, the less branches, the better. Uh, and these, these banks, at least in our area, are so happy to lend to people with, with good balance sheets and, and good income. And so they will have no seizing period because there is no refi. It's just a finance. And they'll finance at 80% of appraised value. And then, and then the underwriting on that is literally they walk it across the hall to the other department in their bank, and it costs you know I'm just probably a thousand dollars to close one of those loans. So very affordable. The only downside to those products is that typically it's a five-year fixed uh, rate, and then it just resets every five years because no bank would take on a 30-year um, risk of a, of a fixed rate. But they're 20 year amateurization. So after five years, you've already paid down a pretty good chunk of money. And we have actually just gone through our first reset period because we've had properties now for over five years. And it actually reset to a lower rate because rates are lower than they were five years ago, which is hard to imagine. But uh, so that is a risk. But we're, we're willing to take that risk for the ease uh, and of, of getting these loans and the ability to, to get them to a uh, loan on price value. 
Gotcha. Okay. I want to unpack. Some yeah. There's a lot of info right there. Let's do it. It's fine. Um, so the only out of the 52 properties, the only one that you've purchased uh, on a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mae, Freddie Mac is that first product. One. Yep. Just well, that first real one. Ones, yep. Gotcha. And all the other ones you've done with what's called a portfolio lender, correct? Correct. Correct. Small banks. Okay. And so every, uh, and do all 52 of your properties still have loans on them or have you paid any of them off? We have not. That is something we struggle. They all have, they all have loans. We all, we struggle with that every day. My partner, mm-hmm. I, do we pay off some? Do we, do we not? Yeah. Uh, we, <laughs> and so I would say we're sitting right now at about a 50, 57 to 62% LTV somewhere in there, depending on your, on your appraisals, which to us feels very, very safe and very conservative. Uh, and so one of our goals, at least currently, as as these pro- um, as these properties start to have their notes paid down and the and the principal pay down is pretty aggressive, right? Because you've made it in several years into the loan, is we're just going to take that money right back out and start over again. Not 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 get a loan bigger than it was before, but just bring it to back where it was, and then take that money out. It's tax free, and and start the the note doesn't change. It's the same amount of money. Uh, and then just start that that process over again and take that money back out. And that's hard for a lot of people to understand. But for us, if we if we paid off all our houses today, I guarantee you tomorrow I'd want all that money right back. <laughs> so and so that's it's and that's somewhat of an aggressive perspective. But that's how we have, you know, I don't I don't have any personal debt. But at night when I wake up when I go to sleep at night, this business debt does not keep me up. And that's because I think we figured out we could have almost half of our portfolio empty, meaning no renters, and it would still carry itself from from the rent and the notes because of how we purchased these properties. Yeah. Well, you know, there's um, often there's an argument between investors, you know, especially return on equity. And Correct. a lot of, of uh, investors don't really factor that in at all. They don't think about it. They're like, hey, I've, just, I've got to pay a paid off property. Uh, well, that's great. Your million dollar, your property that's worth a million dollars is, uh, you know, earning you $30,000 a year. So you're making 3% on that million dollars. Correct. You might as well invest uh, it in a savings account, right? Yeah. So, and, and, and there's there, like you said, you know, there is the, the trade-off is okay. Maybe they sleep better at night. You know? Right. Right. And so it's a personal decision and we, it is something, like I said at the beginning, we struggle with it every day. Should we, should we sell 10 of them and pay off another 10? I don't know. But for us right now, we're still in the growth phase, at least in our brains. And so we want the best return with the most deployed capital as possible. So any of these houses, you know, when we look at our net worth, and we're like, oh, that number's high. Well, a lot of it's in trapped equity that we can't really touch unless we finance it out. And so for us, we want to get as much of that money out. That makes sense, right? As long as the prop, uh, property still cash flow and use that money to buy more properties or to, to invest in higher returns rather than just being trapped in these houses. And so that's, uh, but like I said, we, we talk about it all the time. So it's definitely at the forefront of our minds, what we should do with that. Do like what, if we go through an economic like downturn, if we go, you know, kind of right. a recession, do you have protections against that? Does it still, I, you know, I think, like I said, yeah. So in my experience, I live in Houston, which is a very um, stable economy from a, from a real estate perspective, you know, so we didn't see what happened 
in 08 or, or 12 in, in Arizona or in Vegas, right? Where whole, mm-hmm. my sister lived in Vegas and her whole street was empty except for her house. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's yeah. crazy to me. I just, and that has never happened in Houston. I'm not saying it couldn't, but it would take a, a, an event that we have never seen before for something like that to happen in Houston. Uh, our, our rents and our values have stayed pretty stable. They grow with inflation. In the last couple of years, they've gone up even more because we're in the middle of the best bull market ever. But I just don't see that happening unless, and, and, and typically what happens in recessions in our experience is that rents actually go up because people can't afford to buy houses, whether they get, mm-hmm. you know, they're underemployed or not employed. And so they have to rent. And so the rental supply gets low. And so demand goes up and rents go up in those cases. And it's the classic heads you win, tails you win scenario in real estate. And so that is, again, something we talk about all the time is we worry about that, but the numbers and the data support that we should be okay. The only real risk we have in our model, I think, is, well, two things, is, is you know, soaring interest rates, um, which we don't see that happening <laughs> for a while, mm-hmm. and then a really bad hurricane, right? So when, when Harvey hit, I didn't sleep for three days because I was worried out of my mind for all of these properties. And luckily the flood maps are extremely accurate. We had a couple, we had zero loss. I'll say that right now. I'm very, very grateful for that. We had a couple of roof leaks, nothing, nothing major, but we had a couple of properties where the next door neighbor house flooded. And so, um, but that's again, because we don't buy, uh, you know, in floodplains. And so that was something I'm very grateful that we studied those maps and, and bought uh, accordingly at the beginning. But yeah, systematic risk for me, at least in my area, would be a terrible hurricane. That's the only real risk I see. <laughs> and you're only investing in Houston at this point. Yeah, it is. So you know, our our um, our outlook is we don't want to grow. I mean, we like to grow this thing, but we don't want to make it into another job. And so we understand this market super well. You can tell me an address and a street and our zip codes, and without looking at the house, I can tell you the house is worth. Uh, you know, if it was in normal condition. And so we just, we, we understand this market so well. And so we want to own as much of it as we can. We own different parts of Houston. Uh, we have some that are more favorite than others, but yeah, we have not gone outside of the Houston area. And I don't think we will. So have you, after Harvey, have you seen, did your insurance costs rise at all? Not really, because, you know, it's it's separate, at least in Texas, there's, your flood, your flood insurance is not is not provided by a private company. It's provided by the U.S. government, and we chose. You could you could argue foolishly or not. We chose not to insure any of our houses for floods because we believe the maps. And gotcha. our hypothesis came true, thank goodness. And so that just that just solidified solidified our claim that we don't need flood insurance on these houses. Um, we do see in certain counties where insurance rates do go up just based on. I'm sure on claims and whatnot. And so that sometimes will influence what we buy and don't buy. But uh, to, no, we have not seen, in fact, they stay pretty flat in the last two years. That's well, I mean, it's just the buying coastal markets these days, or even markets, you know, in the Mississippi Valley, you know, sure. oh, right. uh, you run the risk of, you know, a hundred year, a hundred year flood three years in a row and having your, all your cash flow eaten up by flood insurance. Oh, yeah. oh for sure. Know. Right. And so I think flood insurance rates have gone up for sure, uh, but we don't have any. So, <laughs> so ours gotcha. hasn't gone up. <laughs> gotcha. So you started off as a partnership. You started when you got started. You you had 
five partners. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the the challenges that you face there and why you dropped down to two? Sure. Yeah. So it was me and four other people. So five total. And we, it was more of a, you know, comfort thing. We were, it just happened to be who was at that lunch and, and we all had money, uh, a little bit of money to put into this first house and we're interested in doing it. And uh, quickly we were able to learn who just not, not who wasn't pulling their weight, but who actually wanted and was passionate about real estate. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't a test per se. It was more of just natural flow. What happened and quickly, I learned that myself and Dave were very passionate about it and realized that, you know, and we had this similar outlook on, on finances and, and life and family structures and whatnot. And so it just made sense. And we just kind of partnered on our own after that. So we bought five houses with, those, with, with the first five of us and, and all through this um, interest-only loans that we were talking about. And again, the problem with those is that you had to have 30% down. So it took a huge hit every time you bought one. And so from a cash perspective. And so uh, when we bought that other first deal I was talking about, first deal number two, if you will, with the foundation problems, uh, we created a, a new LLC just for myself and, and Dave. And it took a lot more work, right? It wasn't just looking at a house on, on uh, realtor.com or whatever and buying it. It was, you know, scheduling things and, and, and figuring out how much to rent it for. And there was a lot more steps involved, but the return was so much more. And it took less money overall. So it was more time involved. And so we learned then that this partnership was really going to work. And we had similar outlook on life, but we had very different skills. And so we complemented our skill sets. And it, I, you know, I just call it fate or fortune. It was, it was, it was super lucky. But that, that partnership has just bloomed into this huge, this huge thing now. And so the two of us, you know, we talk all the time. We have a, you know, a group mirror text going all the time. In fact, our wives sometimes make fun of us that we're, you know, we're too, we're too involved just with business, right? We're always talking business, but it's something that I recommend to everybody is that to get a partner uh, in which you're going to do this. Cause it's always, first of all, it's just more fun, right? So have some, somebody to talk to about stuff, to vent ideas, bounce things off of. And there's, you can kind of absorb some of the risk as well. So everything, like if I'm gone for a week or, you know, a month or whatever, your partner can take some of the load off, right? And so there's you can split the workload as well as um, as well as the profits. So I that has been probably the number one thing is just uh, having a, a partner who you can trust and someone who you can lean on, and they can lean on you when uh, when times get tough or when you, you know you need to work through something together. Do you have any advice for someone who's starting out how they might find a partner? Yeah, good question. Right. So for me, it was. I just started talking about it with people because I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about this when I started in 2013. You know, I just started reading a few books. You know, it seemed so scary to me and so foreign. I was, you know, what if the house burns down? What if the renter, you know, dies in the house? You know, whatever. You know, there's so many what ifs. And he had done some of that. And so I think either just talking about it with friends in your network, trying to find someone who also either wants to do it or has done it. Or you can also go to your local meetups and find people uh, where that have done some of these things and, and, and people with like, like-minded interests and, and try to partner. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, I don't have any, I don't have any skills to offer. I said, well, that's fine. At least at first, do you have time, right? Do you have time and passion to learn? And if those are, if you have those two skills, I'll teach you whatever you want to know, right? And I'm happy to do it because it's fun for me. And so we've helped a number of people 
try to get started. Uh, we haven't been that successful. I don't, and I think it's because it takes a special breed <laughs> person to to do this, mm-hmm. at least on the side with a full time job and a family and whatnot. But I, you know, so it's just it's just talking about it frequently so that people know that you want to do this, and then and then trying to trying to reach out in your network to find other people who want to do it as well. Well, I think a key is, and you said it there earlier, which is find somebody who complements your skills. Uh, you right. don't want to find somebody who's just like you, you know, somebody who has money, but not the will. You want to find somebody, you know, if you're going to partner with somebody, you want, you want to have complementary skills. Right, right. And, and we've seen people as well. It's like, if someone just wants to be a money guy, that's great, right? Because that's, that's a skill that maybe, you know, if you need money and you have the time, then that might be a good partnership, right? Uh, or vice versa. If you have money and someone else has the time, that's great. As long as you both have common, you know, want to get the same thing done, that could work. But yes, you're right. They, they've got to be able to, to work together. So, you know, you, you started investing in 2013, uh, which was probably, you know, your timing was good. Uh, <laughs> well, right. No, and, it's severely lucky. I, I, will, I will admit yeah. that, right? For sure. Are you still buying in today's market? Yes, we are. We're not buying as many. We used to buy one or two a month. I would say now we average one every other month, maybe one, maybe two a quarter. And that's just because it's our, our standards are higher and there's less, less deals today. And to be honest, we probably don't try as hard because we have, uh, <laughs> we have, we have 50. And so we want more, but it's just this, and there's so many people in this game now. And so that also, yeah. that also uh, limits how many, how many deals we can find. And that's fine. Right. And so, Part of our structure now is just to hold some cash ready so that when we do have a, a little blip in the market or in the, in the economy, we can be ready to, to buy some more. So that's, that's our, our number one goal is to not buy something we're going to regret. And I would say, gotcha. you know, we've only, I think maybe we've bought one or two and then we've sold them once, once we realize they're dogs. But um, that, you know, that's, we are very conservative. I know this probably sounds like we're not, but we're actually very conservative in what we buy. And um, that has helped us. But yes, our deal flow has slowed down a bit, but we are still able to find a few deals here and there. Well, let's talk about sort of your deal criteria. What? Let's dig into the numbers yeah. so people understand, you know, because there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are coming to us from probably bigger pockets and right, you know, right. they talk about the 1% rule, the 2% rule yep, and yep. things like that. And, and, you know, a lot of, some of those, those rules of thumb, you know, uh, kind of more applies to maybe the market as it was not necessarily as it is. So what are you, what's a deal look like to you, a, a typical deal? Yeah. So we, we use the right, excuse me, the rent to price ratio exclusively when we, when we look at these deals, right? So that's what a place would rent for per month divided by the total value of uh, the total price that we pay. So price plus rehab. And so for us, at least in Houston, we've got a little bit higher property taxes in some places and we're just a little more, uh, you know, we want better deals than most. For us, the 1% rule was just a disaster. We were never going to do that. And so we shoot for I would say on average 1.2 to 1.5%, which doesn't sound like a lot more, but it's significant once you add in time, value of money and, and you know, month over month. And so 
I, on average, you know, let's say we get a deal for, I can tell you, we just bought one, I think for 90,000, uh, probably put 7,000 into it. And that place will rent for 1,350 a month. So to use a calculator, I grab one real quick. You know, it's probably a 1.4. Yeah. So that's a 1.4. And so we found that in June of this year. So just, uh, you know, June of 2019. And so those deals are still out there to be had. And so those, when we see that number, that, you know, we, we, we say we make all our money when we buy. Of course, then we have to finance it right and manage it right. But if we don't buy it right, it's hard to manage it right and, and finance it right in a way that will bring us long-term wealth. And so we are shooting for, I'd say 1.25s and higher and higher on that, on that price to, or price to purchase ratio. A rent to price ratio, I should say. Yeah. Um, so, are you still using mostly like yellow letters directly marketing to owners? Yes, we are. So we we send about a thousand yellow letters a month to certain zip codes, and we you know we can we can ta- tailor that li- that that list really well. So we know uh, if they're owner occupied, we know how long they've owned it for. So we know hopefully they have some equity, so they can you know sell it to us at a, at a discount. We know how the size, we know if it has a pool or not, we know the age of the house and all that, and, the, and obviously the location. And so we, we specifically target certain, certain neighborhoods and letters or areas. And then we also buy a fair amount of properties from wholesalers. We have our favorite wholesalers who know if they can't find someone to buy it, that we'll buy it in a pinch for a little bit less, right? So if they're getting near the end of their assignment period and they need to, have a, a sure sale. They know they can call us up and we'll buy it if, if it makes sense for us. And the yellow letters are kind of like those letters you get in the mail. They're like, I'm such and such person. Are you looking to sell yeah. your house kind of thing? Yeah, you got it, right. So, it's, you know, you can argue they're kind of tacky, but they work really well for us. And so it's just a, it's a letter that's, uh, you know, looks like it's handwritten. It's on yellow paper and a normal envelope. So it looks like a letter your grandma would send you. And, um, you know, it just says we, we have a series of five or six that we send. They get a little more aggressive as they go on. And so we'll mail, this, we'll mail to the same person uh, five times over about a six-month period, about one a month. And, you know, usually on the first letter, we don't get anything. We get a, we get a bunch of calls saying, hey, take me off your list. But okay. But by about the third or fourth letter, that's when we see our highest conversion where people say, hey, I've been getting your letter for three months. Tell me what this is all about. Right. And usually it's someone who is either a accidental landlord, right? They had to move or, you know, relocated for work or they inherited a house because, you know, their, their um, uncle passed away or whatever, or they are a landlord who's had a tenant for 10 years and the tenant just moved out and they don't want to have to fix it. And they don't want to have to spruce up the place and get a realtor or they hate realtors or whatever. And they just want to be done with it. And so many of these people call and they have a problem or a pain point and we're trying to help solve it, right? So then we'll go visit them, do a, a quick walkthrough on the house, tell them, hey, this is, you would need to fix these things to get it retail ready, right? To sell on the MLS. So replace the roof, redo the yard, paint everything, change the bathrooms. We add all that up. We say, so if you wanted to get X, you would need to fix Y. So why don't you just sell it to us for Z? And we can close in a week or 10 days 
cash and you can walk away from it. And that's very attractive to people as they have some significant equity because they just want to be done with these places often. And they paid a significant amount of money less 10, 15 years ago, right? Because the market was down. And so everybody wins in those scenarios. And that's typically who we're finding is our, our biggest customer when we, when we mail those letters. Well, do you only buy cash or do you sometimes offer, you know, do you try and buy it on terms where like owner finance or? All oh, right. No, yeah. So we always buy with cash. So, and when we say cash, right, it's, it might not be our cash, but it's money. Correct. We write, we write them a check at closing and because it, that's what's attractive. They want to close in two weeks or less and they don't want to have to deal with waiting and they just want to be done. And then, like I said at the beginning, we will then, you know, get it rented get it fixed, and then we'll take all our money back out with a portfolio loan, say, a month later after we buy it. Gotcha. How are you estimating the cost for the rehab? Good question. So all of our houses are either three or four-bedroom, two-bath houses. We have a couple of duplexes that are two-bedroom, one-bath. And so we know in our market exactly what things cost. We know exactly what it costs to replace a condenser unit or an evaporator coil in the attic or a furnace or a roof. We know it takes $1,800 to paint a whole house for us. I know it's cheap, but that's what we've been able to negotiate. And so all of these things, basically we have line items. We know, you know it costs $1,500 to replace a tub and a tub surround. And so we can go through these houses in just in five minutes. And this is what we'll do like on our Instagram story. We'll walk through a house and just record everything. Just make a list and say, okay, this house is going to be $13,000 right, to fix. And we just add that in. And so that's, and, and people say, well, how come you don't do inspections per se? Like when you buy a house, you know, isn't that risky? In our experience, there's no problem that's not going to, that's going to cost more than $5,000. And, so, and, and rarely have we ever had a house that's had more than one $5,000 surprise. And so for us, in our, we, we just don't, we don't do that. So we will walk through the house, check the age of the AC, check the age of the water heater, look in the attic, you know, check the age of the roof. And that's about it. Everything else is um, we can smooth out in the numbers. And so we know exactly how to price these houses based on that quick 15-minute walkthrough. And that comes just from experience. And because we buy the same exact house every time. We know it's the most liquid house that for us, a three-bedroom, two-bath house, 1,400 to 1,800 square feet, built from 1977 to 1990. That's our bread and butter. And when you were starting off, how did you... How did you learn to estimate those rehab costs? Yeah, good question. So we, the very first, uh, let's say, well, let's say maybe it was the, so after these five houses with the five guys, we, we didn't want to manage them because it wasn't, it wasn't fair to everybody because the other three guys weren't, weren't doing as much, um, you know, uh, sweat equity. And so we hired a property manager, uh, which I was saying it was good in the end because we realized we didn't need one. But it was, you know, it was kind of a, kind of a bad experience for us. They just, it just, they were, they were charging all kinds of fees that we weren't seeing. They were charging to the tenants, and they would just flip places over. Even if tenants didn't want to pay a twenty-five dollar rent increase, they'd get a new tenant, which would then cost us a lot of money. And but what they did do was, for one of our properties, they offered to rehab it. I mean, we paid for it, but they offered to offer all the the contractors um, to rehab it. If, you know, if we signed up with them for a property management agreement, so we did. And then every day, my partner, Dave, would go down there to that house and get the information of those contractors. And we quickly, I wouldn't say Steve stole them, but we, we hired them as well for our other properties. 
and we still use a lot of those same guys today. And they, uh, you know, for us, we were able to negotiate. And then we also are part of a kind of a landlord group here in Houston. And we, we bounce ideas off each other. If you need a window guy or a roofer or someone to do uh, cement work, right? They have someone in that group has done some of that. And so we can quickly figure out what is the going rate for that work and, and price it accordingly with, with our contractors. Gotcha. Awesome. So, uh, you know, contractors are, are the bane, can be the best friend or the bane of existence yes. for investors. And, you know, one of the challenges is finding a good one. And, you know, you can't really go to a real estate forum and say, hey, has anybody got a good contractor? Because probably nobody's going right. to give you their good contractor. <laughs> They're going to give you their second, right. third tier guy. Um, but that's a great idea is, you know, go to a property manager because they want your business and they've probably got good contractors and, you know, and then just, you know, go and get to know them separately. That's a great tip. I like that. Right. And a lot of them have extra time, right? So a lot of our guys will, well, uh, well, we've got big enough now. They, they do a lot of work for us now, but at first they would just do our work, you know, after they finished the other work, which was fine because they just wanted more, more work and more income. So it worked out really nicely. But I will say a lot of our guys, they're just so responsible and they know that we give them constant work. And so we don't beat them up on price. I mean, they give us a good price, but we're not trying to, we're not trying to cheat them out of a fair wage. And in return, they do a good job for us and they know that there will be more work coming from us. So it's a good relationship that we have to get good work, good rates and constant work. Well, and that's such a great point is once you find a good contractor, you better keep him employed. Otherwise, he's going to go work right. for somebody else. And that's exactly. a real challenge. Yeah. And, and not to and take take them up on price, right? Like if, if they're constantly, uh, they're constantly peddling on price, they're going to want not work for you or do, or do substandard work. And so yeah. um, we, just, we try to keep them happy. And in return, they make our life easier. Because in the end, like I said, we don't want this to feel too much like a job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you didn't enjoy your experience with a property manager. Are you guys self-managing 50 properties? We are. We are. People think we're crazy. But for us, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, we're probably near the end where we probably should hire somebody. But so we split them between the two of us, right? And so uh, we get calls from the tenants. And then we just text. Or not calls, I should say. We've trained all our tenants to text us. So they text us if there's a problem. And then we text the appropriate contractor. They make the appointment. They fix the problem. They let us know what the problem is. They you know, take pictures of it. We have an account at the local uh, Home Depots and Lowe's that they can go buy stuff on. And we can approve via text. And so it really is, I never have to go to these properties unless we are changing tenants. You know, so there's turnover. Um, and then the other big tip I will give uh, to listeners, at least the number one tip that Dave and I learned is that you never tell a tenant, if you're self-managing, that you own the property. <laughs> and so none of these tenants know that we own this. They think we're just strictly the property manager working for the, for the owner. And that helps because it gives a, lo- a layer of separation. Uh, you know, we are an advocate for the tenant, helping them with the, with the owner. And so you know, the tenant's like, well, I need to, you know, I need to pay rent a little bit late this month. Well, that's not going to really going to work. What are you thinking? And try to come up with a plan. I'll run that by the owner. Right. And um, it, it just adds a layer there where they're not trying to take advantage of you. Cause I've heard too many stories where uh, self-managing owners get, you know, just aren't in the business of, of running a business. And so they get soft with their tenants. And before you know it, 
they're a month or two behind and that's just, you can't run a business, you can't run a rental real estate business like that. And so that tip has helped us be firm, but not have to get personal with these, with these tenants. Well, and one thing that you, you need to keep in mind too, especially if you have multiple units is you, if you do one thing for one tenant, you have to right. do it for every tenant. Exactly. Uh, otherwise you run up against fair housing laws. Exactly. Um, and you can, you, you can use that as a backup for why you can't, Hey, listen, I got to charge you the late fee. I'm sorry. You know, uh, government regulation says if I don't charge you, then I also have to do it for every tenant. And right. I, I just can't. Yep. Point. So I want to, I want to circle back for just a second before we move on. Um, when you are acquiring a property, are you guys going down yourselves and negotiating with the, um, with the owner and, and talking to them? Or have you gotten to the point where you're hire, hired an acquisition manager? No, we're still doing each one ourselves. And that's because, um, you know, it's probably a little bit of hubris. We just, we just don't trust anybody yet to do it. And so we're, David is an expert negotiator. And so we just, that's just something, and we enjoy it. We enjoy it so much. That's our favorite part. And so to give it to somebody else, it would just, not only would we have to pay them, but it'd be like giving up a piece of our, our, our fund. <laughs> so yeah. we have not done that yet. What I do think we will outsource at some point is probably the repair request and some of the, the lease writing and maybe some of the rent collection, whether it's to a, a virtual assistant or to some young budding novice investor who wants to learn the business uh we that probably is something that's around the corner just because you know no one likes getting calls at mm-hmm. 8 p.m on a sunday that their ac's out right but we're not to that point yet really it's because you know and, and to your point earlier Brittany, the reason we don't have a property manager is because you know, they're charging seven eight percent a month of, of gross rents which is sixty five sixty eight thousand dollars a year for us and really, like I, I don't have gotten to this point yet, but we probably spend on average six hours a week between the two of us, so three hours each managing the houses. So it's it's pretty efficient. I mean, we do book books and other stuff outside of that, but actually working with tenants and working with contractors, it's it's uh it's not that much. So when I think about that and I think about paying someone seventy grand, uh, it hurts me. So I can't do it. <laughs> Do you have, so you've kind of got your system for, you know, the texting with the tenants and things like that. Yep. Do you have any other systems that you've set up, you know, because you haven't really outsourced anything, but there, are there any other important systems that you yeah. use? So, you know, we're, we're pretty basic. So we, we use Excel and we use uh, one of the major banks, right. And we use them for rent collection. So whether it's through Zelle or, Tenants going to the branch directly and depositing money, you know, we don't get any checks in the mail and we don't have to worry about things getting lost in the mail. So everything is automatic or, or, you know, comes into our account electronically and we can reconcile it then into our books. So that's how we do rent collection. And then like I said, for, for repairs and tenants, it's all through, through texting and we pay our contractors the same way all through Zelle. And, and, uh, so very little, I mean, so my biggest tool to be honest, is my smartphone. And that thing, you know, so if I lost that, I'd be in trouble. But that is, it's simple, but it it's works so well for us. So we haven't had to, you know, invest in any cloud-based or fancy rental software or anything like that. We just have very intense and very customized um, Excel spreadsheets that we use that, that work for us perfectly. And so that's our biggest tool. So we can tell 
and we track every expense that comes to the house, whether it's a, a utility when, it, when it's out of, you know, when there's no tenant in there or a repair or a contractor labor or whatever, we can, we track that all back to each house. So we know exactly how each house is performing and can tell what the rate of return is, you know, is it a good month, a bad month, it's been a bad six months, what's going on here and figure out if it's a bad tenant or what, or we're just having some bad luck on a house and then decide if we want to sell it or what we need to do to, to get it back up to the level of performance that we expect. And so that, all that, those numbers is what helps us know and gives us the data to run this business efficiently and effectively. Do you have separate bank accounts for every property? No. Or do you have one? It's all one. It's all one. And, uh, yeah. but what we do, I'm going to explain this, right? So anytime somebody buys something like say a Home Depot or whatever, they obviously, they put a job name on there. So we know which house it goes to. Uh, and then we don't have that many repair requests. Per se- I mean, it's not like hundreds a week, you know, it's probably three, no, it's on average three a week. And so we can easily assign those to the correct house. And so it, it is manual in a sense, but uh, we have not needed to automate that to a, a system just yet, other than just, you know, reconciling the bank account. And I think, you know, that's my partner's favorite thing to do. He loves doing that. So again, it's, <laughs> it's something he enjoys, which you might think is kind of sick, but he likes it. So we'll keep doing it yeah. until he doesn't. Yeah, that's important. I mean, part of real estate, when you're actively doing it, you don't want to be doing the parts that you hate. You really, especially it it takes, it can take a lot of time. So things that you want to outsource can outsource can be really important. But, you know, if someone has the skill and the, the interest in doing it and the time and it's not, you know, putting undue stress on them or anything like that, it's probably be worth doing it sometimes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so, so a good point to that is that at the very beginning, especially in that, that very first house I was talking about with the foundation issues, is we painted some of those walls ourselves. That was just something we wanted to do. We thought we were going to save some money. And to this day, my partner still says, I will never, ever paint another wall. Like I will always outsource <laughs> that. Right. So that's something he hates to do. And, and so we pay for that and it's great. Right. And so that's part of this whole movement is that we we want to transform our time to be able to do stuff we love to do. And it brings us joy. Um, and so painting walls is not one of those things. So we pay somebody to do that <laughs> to your point. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it sounds like you guys have some flexibility of time, even though you are, are still working within kind of a day right. job. Which yep. How do you, any tips on tenant screening? Yeah. So we use, uh, we use the basic, that is a system we use. It's called mysmartmove.com. I think it's backed by one of the major credit bureaus, Experian or somebody. And so we will send a normal application. Uh, when I say normal, it's a standard Texas real estate commission application that asks for, you know, their name and where they work, what their income is, all self-reported. And we look at that. And if we like the data, like if it looks good, then, you know, they have enough income and the rental history looks good. Then we will send them and there's no fee to fill those applications. So those, they can send those to us all day long, send us some, some pictures of their, their uh, last two pay stubs or whatever, and their bank account. Then if it looks good, we will then send them a link to mysmartmove.com, And that's where they will then go in and put their personal information, social security um, address and stuff. And we don't ever see any of that information. 
but it will then process their their background check, check their credit, check their eviction report, and check their criminal history. And it'll email us a report. And that costs, I think, $40 per person. And we make every person who's 18 or older living in a house fill that out. And so once that is sent to us, hopefully it's a formality. Because if they put everything honestly on the first application, it should match what we're seeing in the, in the screening report. And then we just verify that, you know, it looks good. We'll call prior tenants. We will, uh, you know, verify their, their rental history. And then, you know, we say, as long as you give us the first month's rent and a deposit, whatever the deposit is, you can have the keys, even if it's a few days early. Uh, and we will do it. Sometimes we'll, we will find people who maybe have, don't have the best of credit, but as long as they have the income, uh, we will, you know, pick them up. And that's, that's been good for us because we've been able to find some people that maybe wouldn't qualify with a big property management company or a rental company, but they're still good tenants or they had some bad luck in the past or whatever. But as long as they have the income, and then sometimes we'll also make them pay maybe a one and a half or a 2x deposit to, to kind of protect us if, it, if they're consistently having bad luck. But um, uh, that, that's how we, we do that. And then, and then we just explain to them how they pay rent every month and and then stabilize that house and, and let it go. And so that's, uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of how we do that. MySmartMove.com has been very helpful for us to, to kind of screen those tenants. And it's free to a, to a landlord. You just make the, the, the prospective tenant pay the fee. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, I have, before we go on, I have a funny tenant screening story. Um, one of my best friends from a while ago is no longer with us, unfortunately, uh, helped run a um, property management company with his father here in Las Vegas. And uh, he had a soft spot for renting to strippers. Um, <laughs> and, and his father did not. And whenever they'd get a new, a new tenant, you know, application and the, his father would see it was a woman uh, of, you know, whatever age his father would always ask, is this a stripper? And his son would go, no, 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 it's not a stripper. It's not a stripper. Well, nine months later, when inevitably she stopped paying, he would always like, and they'd start the eviction process. His dad was like, she was a stripper, wasn't she? Like, yeah, dad, she was a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had one of those and yeah. uh, she was a great payer. She, and, but she always, she always paid in cash at the bank. And sometimes the bank would charge us a small fee because it was, I assume, yeah. small bills. <laughs> but, so, <laughs> but that's, but she was a great payer. So yeah. Yeah. They can't look, listen, people, if they've got the income, they can be great. But That's the right. problem is that people like that are typically not the most stable um, and can, you know. It's not the people, it's the profession, the profession. that is You're not right. stable. Right. Right. All right. So, with that in mind, Brittany actually <laughs> wanted to talk about family. <laughs> Do it. Switch gears. Oh, well, it's it's actually interesting because we we tend to not really talk to a ton of people who actually have families. You have four kids, um, a wife, you know, uh, you both have families. A lot of times we're talking to these investors and, you know, we're about families and how to do this with limited time and they don't have that experience. And we just try and, you know, afterwards sort of aim it in that direction and, and take what they've told us and, and, you know, make it applicable, um, for someone or kind of give them tips about how, how it could be applicable to them. So I'm just interested in kind of talking about how this affects your life. 
with a family, how you make it work. We've said before, you have a little bit more of a flexible schedule, but I'm sure you, I mean, you still have a job. So, you know, I don't. And kids who want your attention. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't know quite. So there's it's true. Question, so <laughs> that's a good point. So that's, that, I think that is something that sets us apart from most of the stories you hear. Both of our wives do not work outside the home. So we are single income producing families and we have multiple children. And when we say that to most of our friends, they think we're crazy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because I, I look, I'm looking out my window right now and on my street, every one of them is a dual income family. And so that's, you know, fairly unique. But for us, it was important for my wife to be home with the children because that's, that's the whole reason we're here, in our opinion, is to, to raise these, I got four boys, to raise these four boys to, to be productive members of society and, and, and to be kind. And, and, and my partner, Dave, is the same way. He's got three kids. And his wife uh, is is a, is a full time full time mother, and that is just such a big job. And so, you know, at first, you know, I used to commute, you know, downtown Houston every day. I worked for for a big firm downtown, and it was like two extra hours. And I know, you know, some people even commute longer than that in places. But as soon as I stopped that job and I was able to work from home, you ever seen that movie um, Limitless? where they take that drug where it gets super smart, right? It was like, it was like taking that drug for me. It was, I had two hours extra in my day. And at first I didn't know what to do with it. It was, it was insane. And my productivity just shot through the roof because I had extra time and I was working from home. And at least in my job, there's lulls during the day because, you know, fires come up, I put them out and there's other projects I could work on. But now with this side business, I always have something to work on. And so it is a pain. I have a, I have a note on my door. Like right now it's on the door because uh, it's Saturday and my kids are home, but it says, dad is working. Do not disturb. So there was a, <laughs> there was uh, a, uh, someday <laughs> our child will read. <laughs> He's not here today, but sometimes he will be. And like, yeah. uh, on, a, on a good day, he'll like secretly creep in to ask me to like open a package. He's five. Sure. A package. Or be, you know, tell me some other obscure things on a bad day. He's like yelling from the living room. I need a snack. <laughs> right, right. So I'll be on a conference call, and that will happen, right? And I'm like, oh my goodness. And so that was an adjustment at first to say, hey, Dad's always here now, but he can't play with me, or you know, well, he's always working. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not always working. I'm just at home, and I work a good part of the day because that's what humans do. And you just in your mind think that I'm working all the time, you know, a lot of kids never see their dads because they go to, they go to work before they get up and they get home after dinner. Right. And so there was kind of a, a mindset shift, um, mindset shift for that, but we've made it through it. But for us, it is, we do spend a lot of time together as a family and that's because that's important to us. And so that was another reason why uh, I switched jobs years back to work from home because that was, that was important to me. And, and so sometimes though, I do have to, you know, Hey, you know, I got a, an emergency down at the house. I need to go just, you know, jump and leave the family, whatever activity we were working on or doing or dinner and, and bail. And my wife's been very, very accepting of that. She understands the long-term goal in mind uh, and what we're, what we're trying to do here. So it's, you know, it's, it's definitely a group effort and she has picked up so much slack um, where, you know, if I've had to go work on somebody's houses or do something with the, with the rental business or go see a house, a lot of times it'll be, Dave will call me up and say, Hey, there's a deal. We got to go see this house now. Can you leave in ten minutes? And you just have to drop everything and go. 
Um, but it's, you know, that's at that point, it becomes a priority for us. But in the long term, we, we hope it will bring more freedom and more flexibility even uh, by, by taking this, these few years to really double down on a full-time job and a, if you call it a side hustle, but a, another, another endeavor to, um, to, to, to make the future even better. It's very much uh, the position we're in, and I, I always kind of compare it to trying to make some coal to put in the fire. Yeah, um, it, it takes work to get it in there, to make it, and and to put it in the fire. But once it's in, once it's in the fire, it burns the fire for a while. It may not burn forever, but it's going to burn a lot longer than it took me to do the actual work. Um, yeah, exactly. And there's a, you know, everyone talks about well, passive income and all that, and it's like, well, it's never, it's rarely truly passive, but it's residual. It provides residual income. The income continues to, to come after you've put in the work to do it. Yeah. And that's what I, I try to, you know, had that conversation with my wife uh, months and months in the past. I tell her, you know, listen, if I quit my job today, my, my full-time you know, job, the, the income ends. Right. But if, if I build this, this business, essentially that I'm the owner of, and this is true with any business, and you can then outsource the running or the management of that business at some point, the income still comes in, right? As long as it's run well. And that is, that was the mind, the, what we had to shift to is saying, we are making an investment for our future. Uh, and it's much bigger than investing in the stock market. Um, it's much bigger than, you know, putting, saving money in a savings account. We are creating a sustainable business that provides income so that, I don't have to work a nine to five. And that when we found, when we made that switch, you know, then it, it doesn't hurt as much if I need to go take a few extra minutes to go finish something or, or, uh, you know, I, I don't miss, I try not to miss soccer games or, or football games or piano recitals. I've never, I've never had to do that yet. in, in for something with real estate. So that again, it's because it's supremely flexible. Um, and so that has made it nice, but, that if I ever have one of those problems, well, I'll, have, I'll probably choose the family thing over the real estate thing because that's that's how I'm wired. But um, but yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Uh, you've got the blog at thestealthyrich.com. Uh, you're active on Instagram at thestealthyrich. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to uh, find you? Sure, you can DM me uh, on on Instagram at thestealthyrich, or there's a contact form on thestealthyrich.com on our blog. Love to hear from you. We answer every question we get because for us, this is exciting for us. We like talking about this stuff. My wife always makes fun of me because when we go to parties, I'm always in the corner with some guy talking about real estate, not, not being very social. <laughs> and so, so I love getting messages about it. It's my favorite thing to talk about. So reach out to me. I'd be happy to answer any questions or just shoot the breeze if you'd like. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, that was Chris with The Stealthy Rich. Uh, what was your key lesson that you learned from this interview? Chris talked about evaluating deals and he talked about their key metric is the rent to price ratio. And it's often talked about uh, as like the 1% rule, um, things like that. And they actually, they target better than that. They're looking for 1.25 to 1.5 or higher. And that's really kind of where you start. Um, and that tells you, you know, if you're able to, buy a property that's going to rent for a thousand dollars, then let's say $1,500, then you're trying to get all in on that property for about a thousand dollars, sorry, about a hundred thousand to 
you know, maybe $120,000. And that will give you the correct ratio that you're looking for to make sure the property is going to, to properly cash flow. What about you? Um, I think one of the important things to take away is that partnerships are really important that you, you know, you need to be able to complement each other and sort of know your, your skill sets so that, you know, it's not lopsided. Um, it sounds like the, the five person partnership was a little bit lopsided. You know, the two of them were really doing most of the, the actual, uh, I think sweat equity, as Mm -hmm. he said in the interview, and then the other three were more on the money side and that wasn't really necessary uh, for them to be successful. So, you know, they, they transitioned out of that and went down to the two people who were really, um, a good fit together and were able to complement the skills and, and be a successful partnership. Uh, how did he acquire his knowledge? Uh, it sounds like a little bit of just trial and error at first, or sort of, you know, having some people who were already a little bit experienced in it. And then from there, sort of the, the normal, you know, read books, listen to podcasts. It doesn't sound like they didn't any kind of like mentorship programs or anything like that. No, his partner uh, that he, he stills with now today, Dave, sounded like he had a little bit more experience. So part yeah. of what he did was partner with him to uh, uh, to sort of make up for his deficiencies and things like that. Um, what would you, can you, can you maybe think of one of the key things that he needed to know before getting started? I'm not putting you on the spot there. <laughs> okay. I'll, well, I'll go there. No, it's, well, I mean, he, uh, I'm, I don't know that there was something they needed to know. They needed to know that they were interested in it and yeah. sort of move forward. It sounds like they made a lot of sort of things that they wouldn't do. They, they made some choices they wouldn't make now. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I would say really that, from what I understood from the interview and probably a little bit of talking to Chris prior that's not recorded is that they didn't really know a lot. Like yeah. David done a little bit. Yeah. So a lot of it really, I, I double down experience is where he got his, most of his lessons. Yeah. Plus like he learned by doing. yes, he learned by doing. And then, you know, once he kind of got started, he listened to a lot of podcasts, read books, you know, that kind of thing, that free knowledge base. But um, it's not, I mean, they kind of got lucky. They already had the skills and, and some basic knowledge and, uh, to, to really do this successfully, which is awesome. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really great when you fall into it. And they also started in 2013. So, you know, the timing, he admitted timing their was, timing was great. Was, was a, a lucky, yeah. um, lucky component, but, uh, now, you know, luck is, is definitely not, not the, the running no. you know, the driving force, um, they clearly know what they're doing and make choices based on sound financial, um, decisions. And it sounds like Dave is, is kind of the financial guru. So. Yeah. Gotcha. Anyway, uh, I would say if there was one thing that they really needed to know was, and they had to, they had to learn how to evaluate rehab costs. And they and they did that by basically initially going to a property manager who had contractors and basically, um, and now they, it's gotten to the point where they've done it so many times that they know the market. Yeah, I mean they basically know what things are going to cost. They can go in, they can look at a place, and as he said, 
you know, and so many people get so caught up in, you know, wanting to know exactly, exactly what it's going to cost to rehab, you know? Yeah. Um, and he said, and they even skipped the inspections yeah. um, because he says, you know, typically nothing's going to cost more than $5,000 to fix. Yeah. So um, you're just kind of paying to then pay again for yeah. that thing. If it comes up later, exactly. um, I don't know how much inspections cost, but not that much, but still. still a saving spot. And it might be that something that they add at some other point that they do end up having an inspector later um, when they do start to outsource things. You know, we talked about they sort of are doing a lot of the things right now for themselves and, and they will probably grow out of that when it becomes necessary or they yep. feel like they want to. Uh, money. So how much did it take to get started? Well, I know that they, that first property that they bought, they needed to bring $25,000 to the table and they, but there were five partners who brought $5,000 yeah. each. He actually said 6,000 in okay. the interview. Okay. Winner. Just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So $6,000, but, and, and he will, I mean, as he said, like that was kind of their first, first deal. Mm-hmm. Um, what about that second one? Uh, where did they bring that money from where they had the, the foundation issue? Do you remember what they remember. did there? Well, they're, they've gotten pretty good at, um, they now, they don't actually need a lot of money now because they're able to, they have, they built network with private investors or hard money lenders. So they're able to basically acquire property for quote unquote cash, which is gen- generally other people's money, uh, which they either, which they typically borrow. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 my understanding is that's how they acquired that second, that second first property. As well, yeah. so. Um, how much time does he spend on his endeavors now? We didn't really get specifics on total. I would guess probably on a really, really crazy like week, he's probably like 10 to 15 hours, mm-hmm. like where they're maybe looking at a house and doing this and doing that. But he yeah. said about three hours for, you know, the typical there's problems, you know, repair stuff because, um, so much of it is just outsourced, you know, they've got their texting system with the tenants, um, and the repairmen. Yeah. Yeah. So that was about three hours and they said there's still like, um, the books and things like that. So, I, I mean, I would guess three to 10 hours probably. And, and for, for him, some of that is in between when he, you know, while he's working, but in like when there's a lull in time. So, um, you know, he's able to sort of, it's not necessarily on top of the hours he's working it's sort of within the hours he's working, which is nice. And that's yeah. really, if you can make that work, um, if you can find a way to have that flexibility, that's one of the best and easiest ways to get into real estate. If you have time, like a time crunch, you know, about something that we're kind of working towards is being able to have some of that, more of that flexibility to where one or both of us can do more during the day. Yep. Could he do this strategy from anywhere in the world? Right now, if his partner is in Houston, yes. (laughs) Um, It sounds like, I don't feel like they could do it if both of them left at the same time. No. It sounds in the future when they have other people doing these things for them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree. I said right now they are, they're very active investors. Uh, They part of their unfair advantage that they have is they know that market really, really well. Uh Um, 
and their boots on the ground. And so I would say right now, no, but in the future, if they wanted to um, build the systems and hire hire the professionals to start taking it over. Then yeah. yeah. Well, even, I mean, I would say like they could be gone a lot more if they outsource more of the upkeep and then they mm-hmm. can just look for houses. You know, if, if someone else was doing the, like managing the letters and the yeah. houses and the, all those like smaller things. And then they were just going and looking at like one of them that was just going to look at the house. Um, you know, you could theoretically live on the other side of country and do that occasionally. I mean, they said they're, he said there's, they're probably buying maybe one a month or, you know, a couple a quarter. So especially right now where they're a little bit slower, theoretically, they they could travel more if they outsourced um, some of those smaller tasks or the the maintenance tasks. All right. Well, that was Chris from thestealthyrich.com. Uh, we certainly enjoyed uh, speaking with him. Check out his blog uh, when you get a chance or check out his Instagram at The Stealthy Rich. Let's hit the road. Bye. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.